there was a lack of people who looked like me that I could turn to specifically in this profession, once I got into this profession, to help me understand what I was seeing uh, and maybe help me um, to process it a little bit more from the perspective of being a black person in, 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 in the United States. And so we all just talked about, um, you know, wh wh why we you know wanting to see more people like us in, in, the, in the pipeline. Well, being a mentor is the, the best way to do it, right? Like you, yeah. one of the best ways to do it because there are people out there who need you, who need to hear your perspective. Who and this, So that's why, I mean, think about it. This show is a form of mentoring. Mm -hmm. Like, think about that. Like you are opening up avenues uh, for people to hear things uh, from people that might have similarities with them and to, to talk about things or to just be exposed to things that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. Um, and I mean, these are the types of things that are just required from you. You know, if you're, if you're a Bible guy, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Um, it, it to me is an obligation, it's a duty, and it's a natural one. Yo, welcome back to another episode of Scholarships. And if this is your first time tuning in, I just want to say thank you. Um, my name is Larry Alexander, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tone Gaines, uh, where we really just try to have candid conversations with scholars. In this episode, we sit down with attorney Apollo Carey. Apollo Carey is an equity partner at a law firm in St. Louis. Apollo was originally trained as a litigator, but has been practicing corporate, transactional, and regulatory law for over a decade. I had a chance to connect with Apollo uh, at a legal conference on legal diversity over the summer. And right away, I could tell that he was uh, just a really genuine person. And I thought uh, his lived experience would be something that would be really great for this platform. So in this episode, we're going to talk to Apollo about growing up in St. Louis um, and, and really just try to draw upon what he's learned along the way in his educational and career journey. Um, we're also going to talk about the fact that he's an equity partner in a law firm. That is something that is no small feat. Uh, he also has uh, a unique perspective as someone that serves as the city attorney uh, for the city of Ferguson um, in the aftermath of the Mike Brown murder. And so we're really excited to break bread with Apollo. Um, and so, yeah, let's get into it. Yo, I appreciate it, man. It's good to, good to be here with y'all, man. You know, uh, just to start off, like, tell us about yourself, like, who are you, uh, your upbringing, things like that? Yeah, for sure, man. Born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. You know, um, I don't even think I left St. Louis until I was 18 years old. I mean, I mean, well, you know, not kind of like vacation, like family vacations, you know, here or there. But for the most part, everything was, was St. Louis. Then um, I grew up in the inner city of St. Louis. So it was like this place called Fairground Park is it was uh, North City. And it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, and at the time I'm, a, I, you know, I, I was a, a nineties kid, right? So, uh, eighties, eighties and nineties, um, was sort of my growing up. And so gangs, you know, bloods, crips, uh, red and blue and, mm -hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff was a, a, you know, a big thing. And I happened to be a UNLV fan back in the day, Larry Johnson and Greg Anthony and all those people. But I lived in a crip neighborhood. <laughs> oh, man. Right? So, oh, man. but one day for my birthday, my mom got me this UNLV jacket, right? And it was bright red and gray. And oh, man, I love this UNLV jacket. And because uh, I was, you know, 
Larry Johnson was my homie, and Stacy Allman, all them people. And so, uh, you know, I'm wearing my UNLV jacket at the bus stop, man, and I got the, you know, these cribs rolling down the street, looking at me, pointing at me like, yeah. and so my boy, <laughs> who I was waiting on the bus with, he was like, man, you brave. Why you wearing that jacket out here? I didn't really understand. You know, I mean, I knew, but I didn't really know it was mm-hmm. going to be like this big issue, right? And so, you know, my boy was like, man, you need to take that jacket off. And so I was like, all right, man, I, I ain't taking my jacket off. They're going to have to say something. <laughs> so somebody did come to me and say something. And I got into a scrap and dude took my jacket and, you know, beat me up and took my jacket. So then I went home and my mom was like, well, where, where your jacket? And I'm like, uh well i got jumped she's like well you better go get that jacket i was like huh <laughs> she said, yeah don't, said, don't come back here unless you got that jacket i was like oh man so you know had to figure that situation out um uh, i was able to get my jacket back i won't tell you exactly what i did but i was able to get my jacket back and um come back and my mama let me back in the house but that was the type of stuff that you know i had to deal with growing up man it, it was just it was just wild and so um you know drugs and all that other stuff drug drugs but my mom did a pretty good job of keeping me focused on my schoolwork so always been a good student you know one of the big things we have here is you know where you go to high school right and mm-hmm. so uh here is a, is one of those things where is a that's a trick question because really they they're uh analyzing you from a socioeconomic perspective to sort of see whether or not you got money <laughs> and see where you kind of came from or where you didn't come from. But uh, I went to a city school, um, a city high school. It's called Metro High School. It was a um, college prep um, high school. And so it was one of the very few in the the public, the the sort of the public high school um, or excuse me, the public school system uh, was Metro High School. So and it was actually when I went to it, it was number 45 in the nation. So you had to test into it. Mm-hmm. And it was really, um, you know, rigorous. And it was the type of um, high school that was um, we had an open campus. And so it was a weed out school, bro. You could test into it. And I tell you, because it was an open campus, nobody kept track of you. You if you didn't go to class, nobody, you know, you, nobody took attendance. Nobody, yeah. you know, you could come and go as you please. And I got to tell you, my uh, <laughs> my class started out with um, 180 people. When I first was a freshman, there were 180 people in my class. When I graduated, there were 35 people in my graduating class. Damn. And so you could just see, you know, you give kids this freedom to sort of. And the idea of the of, the, of that high school was college prep. Right. So it was like we're, we're preparing you for what college is going to be. But mm-hmm. it was a public school. So if you tested into it, you know, you could get into it. And a lot of people just didn't come to the table. They weren't serious students. I've always been, no matter what my issues have been, uh, you know, you could say a lot of things about me, but I've always been a serious student. Um, And then after I got out of high school, graduated from high school, I went to University of Missouri, uh, Columbia. Uh, I think my third day of college, um, I met who a woman who who is today my wife, but who had become my you know, she was my girlfriend. You know, I met her three days into college. Um, and we ended up dating the whole time, uh, while we were in college and she ended up getting, when we graduated from Mizzou, but we were in the same class and we graduated together. She ended up getting into Arizona state to do her graduate school. And so we moved, I moved with her out to Arizona state 
because um, we had had kids at the time. You know, we I think we had we had we had two kids while we were in college. Um, and you know, everybody was like, oh man, you know, that's a bad move. You're gonna have to drop out, you ain't gonna be able to make it, you know, blah blah blah. But you know, that kind of stuff. I've been hearing that, you know, all while cats was trying to, you know, beat me up and take my jacket, right? And then yeah, I, yeah. Ended up, <laughs> I ended up getting my jacket back, I ended up doing everything I needed to do. So anytime anybody ever said anything like that to me, I wasn't really tripping off of that. You know, I, I just knew like, well, it's gonna be a little bit more difficult, but you know, at the same time, um, I knew that I knew what I could do. You know, we we moved out to Arizona and she went to grad school and I worked a little bit, took a little break from school. She then, um, you know, graduated and then we moved back to the Midwest and then I started law school. So that sort of explains the little break between 1998 and 2002. Uh, then I started law school at, and went to St. Louis University. Um, and um, I was working uh and going to law school at the same time they had an evening program uh so you know because by that time we had three kids and so it was just you know i wanted to go to law school but i wouldn't you know i couldn't stop because i had i couldn't stop working because i had a family to support so uh went to the evening program and that that took me three and a half years not um the, the three years so it's just basically i just went to school um you know from six to ten at night mm -hmm um pretty much every day uh, and then i had to go every summer when everybody else was getting summers off i had to go to school every summer and then there was an extra semester you know after everybody who i started with graduated in june i had i ended up graduating in december um but made it through and uh it was all good and uh sort of my last piece of schooling as it related to um practicing law was I did get an LLM in tax law. So that was, <laughs> uh, that story is pretty, pretty crazy. So when I came out, it was like the end of 2005, it was December of 2005. And, um, you know, that was like in 2006 is when um, the recession happened and the market crashed and the bubble popped and, you know, all this stuff. And there just weren't many um, jobs available. Um, as a matter of fact, what happened was when I was a, uh, in law school, I was clerking um, with the United States Postal Service and I had a position. Um, I, I clerked a summer with the United States Postal Service, my 2L year. Um, and then they gave me an offer to um, come and work for them uh, when I got done with my 3L year. Well, during that year, there was a hiring freeze for the United States Postal Service because what was happening was you know, FedEx and UPS and people sending more emails and not using the postal service. And so the postal service revenue was not where they thought it was going to be. And so they're like, well, you know, you, you have an offer from us, but we can't tell you when you're going to start. We can't tell you um, when, you know, if we, you, you know, if at the end of the um, your 3L year that we're going to have a position for you. So here I am, you know, in my 3L year with an offer that I don't even know I'm going to be able to execute on. So now I'm going to have to look for a job. So, you know, I found this job in, in this law firm. Uh, it was a local litigation law firm, which, you know, the, the uh, I guess the per perception of the firm was that it was a sweatshop. Um, and, you know, people just sort of go there when they don't get any of the other jobs. Well, I mean, that's the situation I found myself in, which was I had a job offer in a place where I wanted to go, uh, but it didn't work out for me. So 
I took the job at this other law firm and you know, it was good. It was, it was actually, it was as advertised, but it was actually good for me because um, it took, it, it sort of hit me immediately. They were the type of law firm that threw you in the fire and was like, look, you, you either sink or swim. You either got it or you don't, yeah. you know, you you're going to be scared or you, you don't get out here and do it and take the initiative and figure out what it is you need to, to do. So I was doing that for a while. I did that for a year and a half, but you know, I got to tell you, um, it, it and we were doing like litigation. We were doing like um, like slip and fall litigation, or like dead babies, or horrible traffic accidents and stuff like that. And so I said to myself, "Dude, if this is where practicing law is, I I can't do this." You know, I had a <laughs> not for me. I had a tax background. I had a real estate background. And I needed a way to sort of fuse those two together. So, so I just stopped practicing law for a year, went back, got the LLM, and then got a job as a transactional attorney um, after doing that. And so that's sort of, you know, my educational background as it relates to, you know, to my, you know, my, my legal career, not exactly a straight line, not exactly, um, you know, the road that everybody else might have, most people would travel, but it's my road. So, um, you know, I'm cool with it and it helped make me who I am. So no, that, that, that's spot on. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is just touch on the evolution really of your career from, you know, starting off and it sounds like in a personal injury litigation type situation, uh, yeah. going back, getting your LLM specializing in real estate and tax. Um, and then just talk about just the evolution of your practice and what you're currently doing now. I had a background in real estate and tax prior to becoming a lawyer that time that I spent in Arizona just sort of the jobs that I had while I was there. Um, and so, you know, I was also a certified state in the state of Missouri. I was a state certified real estate appraiser. Like I've been mm. appraising commercial real estate for, and I was certified to do that for 14, 15 years in the state of Missouri. Um, part of that was while I was a lawyer, but I had become certified before I became a lawyer. So I had this real sort of background and sort of analyzing commercial real estate um, from a financial perspective uh, and sort of understanding um, markets, supply and demand, uh, you know, and all these various different things that go along with um, the real estate game. So, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to utilize that stuff. I didn't want to, you know, as I was doing this personal injury litigation and number one, the subject of it just was sometimes it was horrible you dealing with babies dying and stuff like that i mean that's just not i i, I personally can't participate in that on a daily basis mm -hmm. and, and not be depressed um but two <laughs> you know here i was i had these this background of you know real estate and tax stuff that i had done previously um and i wanted to be able to combine that with my legal experience so when I got out, when I went back and got the LLM in tax law, that gave me sort of, you know, those letters, that LLM letters for those of us who aren't fortunate enough to sort of come out practicing in transactional law. Um, those letters sort of give you credibility to be able to make that transition into transactional law because, you know, tax while is its own sort of discrete thing. Um, motivation the motivations that uh, that investors or people who you know or, or, or let's just say buyers and sellers um you know the tax implications of their decisions you know can can motivate them one way or the other or at least interest them 
and you know and how they structure a transaction and whether and the timing of when they do uh, complete a transaction you know and various different um elements um along the way of so i i figured i thought well if i want to break into that game and sort of merge all my background that the llm was the best way to to go and it turned out to be super true i first started out advising clients on um you know startup businesses on how to organize themselves um and you know sort of getting that information about who they were what did the business plan say who they you know what what, what did they see them where did they see themselves in five to ten years helping them structure something that you know gave them the the most um sort of favorable path to get to where they saw themselves in five or ten years um so doing a lot of startup business counseling and then the other side was doing a um doing a lot of business succession planning um and helping structure that you know buy sell agreements and you know all kinds of you know the various different stock buyout uh, agreements and um uh, some uh, executive compensation work i was doing a lot of that kind of stuff um and then uh you know the opportunity came for me um to work with a really, really big uh, fast food franchise, like one of the biggest fast fast food fr franchises that um, you know you would uh, you would recognize it immediately. And that opportunity just came. I was at a conference, um, and I was just talking to people uh, at the conference and struck up a relationship with a guy who. Um, you know, was was working for this company. Um, they were about to expand in, in, into Missouri and they were just saying, hey, you know, we need counsel in Missouri. We'd like to, you know, anybody who's doing this kind of thing. And um, at the time, um, I had the real estate background, of course, because I was a commercial real estate appraiser, but I wasn't exactly practicing real estate law. I was doing more corporate and tax law. Um, and um, this was 2012 or so, you know, right around 2012. Uh, and, um, but this particular company, man, there is so, they're super relationship based, you know, they just, they're very like, you know, we want you like, and we'll, you know, we'll even, you know, we'll hire you and pay you to learn because we think you will represent us the way we want to be represented. And I thought, I felt, I don't know, honored by that. I think, you know what I mean? Cause a lot of times when people are hiring, most of the times I would say 90% of the time. In this game, people hire the gray hair, right? They want the gray hair. They want the experience. They want the person who, you know, been doing it forever in a day. And it's rare that you find a client who's like, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll pay you to learn because we, we like, we want you as a person, not necessarily your experience or your gray hair. And so um, that opportunity presented itself and that gave me the, the sort of segue into the real estate game. So right now, I would probably say, you know, 70% of my practice is, is real estate, um, maybe 20% corporate and maybe 10% tax, um, just, you know, to sort of cover the evolution that we talked about. You mentioned that, you know, you made equity partner, uh, just, and that's something that I don't want to gloss over, right? And yeah. so can you just sort of explain to our listeners what equity partner is and then what it meant to you when you, when you were able to do that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, in a law firm, you, you know, there are different levels 
you know, you, you have associates, you have partners for the most part. Most law firms have associates or partners. I know they can be organized as different things. They can call them shareholders. They can call them members, depending upon how they're or organized from a corporate perspective. But, you know, if you just think of associates and partners within as, as the two main groups and then within the partner group, you have um, the non-equity folks. And those are just people. Um, who are, um, from my perspective, just sort of given a title to advance their career to the next level to where they can make the equity level. And the equity level is where you actually are an owner. You have a percentage ownership uh, in the company or, or in the law firm, rather. Uh, and so within that partnership group, you have the non-equity partners. Um, a lot of like, you know, I've heard it, you know, I've heard them called glorified associates. You know, I've heard them called because they don't have equity. They don't, don't have actual ownership. They may not even have voting rights, depending upon how the firm is organized. Um, some firms give them voting rights, maybe like half a vote or something like that. Um, but others may even give them full voting rights. If they just don't have, uh, you know, ownership. So um, the equity part, you know, it's it's just one of those things, man, where, you know, traditionally people like me have been sort of kept out of that, that um, that ring of people. Uh, who can actually have ownership uh, in a law firm. And so, um, you know, people like us, not just me, but people like us have sort of been um, strategically and intentionally kept out of that ring. And so um, being an equity partner means that you are sort of at, you're at the table now. There's a lot of people like me who, you know, being an equity partner at a law firm, you know, I'm one of, you know, maybe four people in my entire law firm. Um, and still, when you still look around the market where I'm at, you know, believe it or not, we having four equity, black equity partners have the most black equity partners in my market. <laughs> right. And so you just like, man, uh, there, we still behind the eight ball when it comes to, um, you know, equity and like representation. But the drum needs to keep being beat. So. Obviously, in preparing for this this uh, conversation, I noticed that um, one of your clients, maybe previously or currently, uh, was the city of Ferguson. Right. Uh, and so I guess I'm just wondering, uh, what has that sort of role been like, especially in the aftermath uh, of the Mike Brown uh, situation? So, um, you know, obviously, you, you know, the world knows about the whole Mike Brown situation in 2014, the tragedy where he was murdered in, in the city of Ferguson. And um, that was, uh, you know, the, the, the one thing that people may not know about this whole situation was that where he the street on which he was murdered, he was maybe 500 feet from the the sort of the line of the very next municipality, which is called Jennings, Missouri. And so this almost became not a Ferguson, Missouri issue, but a Jennings, Missouri issue, because he was, I mean, he was, the street he was on was right there by the, um, you know, by the sort of the municipal line, so to speak. I bring that up because, you know, the city of Ferguson, traditionally, when you think about all the stuff surrounding Michael Brown and then like the, um, the uh, Department of Justice investigation into their um, policing practices, their municipal court practices. Um, if you had asked people prior to all those events, whether or not the city of Ferguson was one of the cities that you would have had to worry about as it relates to those things, um, 
most people would have probably told you no, that the city of Ferguson was not the one that you had, you know, so it wasn't like the city had like this horrible, horrible reputation. Now I will say there were, there were other municipalities sort of surrounding the city of Ferguson and Ferguson wasn't necessarily completely innocent, but they just weren't the main one you would say, you know, would have these issues um, with policing and, you know, municipal court issues. But, um, it, you know, Ferguson um, had those issues with Mike Brown. They had those issues with the Department of Justice. I did not represent them at the time. Um, the city attorney that they had um, resigned um, after um, sort of all that stuff went down. Um, and just before the consent decree uh, was signed uh, by the city of Ferguson. And so the city of Ferguson was without a city attorney. Well, you know, I grew up in the city of St. Louis, but a lot of family um, in and around the city of Ferguson, Kenlock, Berkeley, uh, Florissant, which are all surrounding municipalities um, there and sort of kind of grew up in and around Ferguson and thought, well, I mean, if they need a lawyer to sort of shepherd them through this sort of phase of dealing with the Department of Justice and, you know, these types of things, if not me, then who? Right. You know, because, again, you don't have a lot of people who look like me. And this is a predominantly African-American community. Um, you know, it, it is a mixed community, but predominantly Af African-American. Uh, and, um, you know, if not me, then who? Right. Like they need somebody who's going to, you know, that so that the people there, um, the citizens can see somebody who is, who, you know, who looks like them who can articulate, who can represent them in the way that they, you know, would want to be represented and to sort of help usher them into this new phase of their existence, which was, and they called it, you know, for, uh, you know, moving forward or something like forward through Ferguson or something like that. Um, and, and, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, I thought, you know, I grew up around this place, you know, my family still lives in this city. Um, they need good legal representation and they need somebody who actually gives, gives a damn about the city and gives a damn about the people um, and who's not just, you know, in it to, you know, you know, make make a dollar off of the, the backs of African-Americans, which was sort of the whole thing with the municipal court uh, allegations that they had, you know, people, you know, putting people in jail and giving them, you know, five or six tickets, uh, you know, and these were poor African-American people who could not pay and people and people writing these tickets knew that these people couldn't pay. So it was just sort of creating this debtors prison so to speak so i just really sort of saw myself as um to me it, it just made sense and you know it's been good um it's been challenging i mean it's not without its challenges there's significant challenges um you know they're under federal scrutiny you know so you i deal with you know lawyers from the department of justice on a weekly basis almost um you know dealing with um compliance issues with the consent decree and you know, that kind of thing. I wanted you to kind of paint a picture of the progression, I guess, the legislation and the policies have, you know, had on Ferguson, you know, post Mike Brown. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's so the document, uh, which is the consent decree, it is what it is, is a part um, settlement agreement and part court order. So it's a hybrid document. And um, it, it's, an, a it's a document that the parties agreed to and then a judge entered as an order. And so the judge has enforcement powers over the order. And um, so 
in that document, which is a public document. If you Google Ferguson consent decree, you can you the PDF would come up. Um, it, there is sort of a, um, you know, it gives you basically the roadmap on how, uh, you know, policing was going to change um, in the city of Ferguson from the old model to a much more community-based model, community-focused model. Um, so, you know, the idea was, um, the general idea in the document is, hey, you know, we need to number one, infuse constitutional principles into the city of policing. And those things start with, um, you know, accountability, transparency, training, data collection, you know, very various different um, elements of um, policing that, you know, uh, so Ferguson's a, was a town of 22,000 people when the consent decree uh, was, was signed. Um, now it's probably more like 20,000. So there's been a little bit of a population decline, but still, um, you know, what you would consider a small town police department, you know, they operate differently. Right. And so is when you're in a small town, um, even though it's in St. Louis County. Oh, and that's another thing sort of, <laughs> which might help you guys sort of understand what we deal with here. So in the city of St. Louis, um, you have the city of St. Louis and then around St. Louis is St. Louis County. The city itself is not incorporated into the county. So the city is sort of on its own uh, with all of its services and its revenue generation and all this stuff. And then you have St. Louis County, which has 88 different municipalities in it. Not all of them have their own police force, but a large number of them have their own police force. So you have this sort of fiefdom mentality within St. Louis County where people are like, hey, you know, this is my community. We have our own police force and this is how we do it in our community. You are over there. You guys do it however it is you want to do it. And you can just imagine that when that's sort of your mentality, you can imagine that things like racism and things like, um, you know, uh, discrimination and uh, a lack of equity can just run rampant. And when that's sort of your your reality. So um, but, uh, you know, sort of back to the principles. So, you know, we think you think about infusing constitutional um, uh, thought process and constitutional um, uh, maxims into into policing. So you have a lot of like First Amendment policies uh, that were put in place that govern um, protesting when, uh, you know, how police are supposed to interact with protest protesters, what a protester's right is uh, to say the things that they're going to say, um, you know, how the police force should um, you know, uh, maneuver around those rights to allow people the freedom to express themselves, but then to also uh, be able to implement the restraints on First Amendment practice that are legal. So there are legal restraints to to, to the First Amendment. Uh, and so a lot of it is very specific and very um, uh, detail oriented about what police officers can and can't do during a particular protest. So let's let's you know that's one example. Another example would be um, use of force, right? And so that's more of a transparency issue, right? So uh, getting a good definition of what it means to use force, um, and um, you know, does that mean every time you pull your weapon? Does that mean when you let the dogs out? Does that mean when you actually shoot or strike somebody? Um, so you know, understanding what it means to actually have a use of force. And then once you realize what that means, 
documenting it and making sure that you know the reports are you know are consistent that body cameras are on um so you have a lot of body camera policies about when and when when they can it can't be turned off um you know this kind of stuff um and but also just making sure that when there is a, a use of force there is um accountability for uh, force that that tends to uh be um you know that what you might consider to be over the over the top um and then there's an oversight component you know there and what that means is there's a community like a civilian review board right and so these are people who are not um not police officers but just civilians and they have the power to come in and review complaints against the police um they have the power to come in and not even just review complaints but just to get like a sampling of your use of force reports and just to sort of look at those use of force reports and to ask questions of the police force as to, you know, why was this filled out this way? Why was it filled out that way? Where's this part of it? This part seems to be missing. This looks to be like it's a pattern. What's going on here? You know, these kinds of things. So sort of like a check and balance. Um, and that's why I was saying like the issue of the use of force policies is really one of transparency because you have oversight, right? Um, there's also training policies, right? So I mean, again, man, like I'm a real estate lawyer, bro. Like, and this is this is all stuff that I learned, you know, in the last six years. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm used to like, you know, due diligence and loan documents and personal guarantees and stuff, <laughs> stuff like yeah. that, right? But this is all like interesting. Like this is like stuff that I'm really also passionate about as well. You know, learning, you know, have, having having to sort of understand, you know, being a young um, black man growing up and seeing the police doing certain kind of stuff in my neighborhood and just mm -hmm. sort of wondering how does that happen why does that happen how do they get away with that you know and now i see the inner workings of a police department that didn't have any you know well that had policies you know they're, they're not not to say that there weren't there weren't a policy-based for sure organization yeah. beforehand yeah. but they didn't have the detail that's required um for actual constitutional policing you mentioned uh that kind of invigorates you to be a part of the, you know, the change that's, that's taking place in Ferguson. I guess I'm wondering what will success look like in, in your opinion? Yeah. So I look at it as man, this is the way I look at pretty much everything, which is success to me will look like um, that the battle just continues, right? Like, I don't know, like, okay, so we have a consent decree reaching consent decree compliance that will be a measure of success um however the game ain't over with at that point in time because you know you can't just reach consent decree compliance and then go back to the way it used to be right and so my idea of success is just you know obviously consent decree compliance would be great and what what that means is that the court order will be lifted you know and you know we will the city will have been in substantial compliance for a period of time um we're um at this point we're on the way to substantial compliance and once you hit substantial compliance you have been demonstrated for a couple years um and then once you've demonstrated for a couple of years then you are no longer under federal scrutiny uh as to what you're doing so yes i will say that the the marker of no longer being under federal scrutiny will probably be something that um you know would be i would probably feel like i've you know reached a level of success but i'm smart enough to know that it's really a lifelong battle man you know a lot of times uh you know we feel like 
you know, as, you know, soldiers in a war, or, you know, maybe you look at yourself that way. I, I look at myself that way. Um, you know, there's, you know, you guys know, and you guys may were probably around when the boondocks was prop was, was, was uh, popular, but you know, they, there's a line in that theme song, you know, and he was like, you know, and I'm gonna remain a soldier till the war is won. Like yeah. and that's like the last part. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you got to just remain a soldier for, for what it is you believe in. For me, success is continuing to fight and then having another generation to come up behind me like y'all cats and then y'all going to have, you know, sons and daughters and they're going to come up and they're going to be able to, to fight. And so just sort of producing that, you know, that pipeline of people who, who see the world the way it, it, it kind of is and, you know, are willing to, you know, sacrifice and put forth the effort they need to put forth to, 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 to be the change that they want to see. Just to switch gears a little bit, like one thing that I struggle with knowing that I'm a lawyer, right? Like when I get pulled over, I still go back, although I know like the law, I, I mean, somewhat, right? Like I can kind of figure it out. I can recall certain things. Um, I guess, what are those conversations like? Because you have the rules, right? The, the, the legislation that is passed right. in, in, in our, in our, uh, in our state. Um, and then you have the unwritten rules, the conversations that like our parents, my dad had with me, I'm sure you probably, or you might've had with your son, but can you talk about like the struggles you, you have when, when, um, balancing the two, right. As a lawyer, yeah, but as a black man, especially yeah. in like an inner city, like St. Louis. And, and yeah, the conversation I, struggle. You have I struggle mightily with that for sure. Cause mm -hmm. you know, my biological father was, a uh, was a, uh, he didn't raise me, but he was a police officer in the city of St. Louis. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, growing up, man, I had a lot of anger, right? And I still, to this day, have an edge to my personality because of uh, some things I saw and experienced when I was a kid, right? So, I mean, of course, you know, as a mature adult, I've learned how to, you know, capture that uh, and channel it and and use it to my benefit. But I have to balance, I guess, this this thought of anger when I get pulled over, like, why are you pulling me over? First of all, you know, I, you know, but part, you know, I will say this, you know, sometimes I am speed, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> you, if you get me, you just get me. Um, but, you know, my attitude when you pull me over is, you know, I'm going to be polite to you, but I'm not about to bow down. I just can't. I just, there are just, there's not, there's nothing in me that's going to make me like look down in a way or, you know, I'll be respectful. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to ask questions, you know, I mean, I'm going to, you know, ask, you know, what was I, you know, officer, why, why did you stop me? You know, was I, you know, did I change lanes improper, inappropriately or, you know, you know, this, these kinds of things. And so when I had the conversation with my son, you know, he's a different kind of dude and my perspective about making sure my son is safe uh outweighs anything having to do with you know how i might feel like i want to address a cop you know when they when they put me over and plus i represent a police force now right so like there's a whole lot of different things that go on in my head about you know what goes on i, I will say i no longer because i represent a police force me individually i'm no longer afraid when i get you know like i used to as a you know as a younger man you know whenever i would get pulled over that that thing in your stomach it's like oh god here we go you know like oh man i hope i'm not 
you know, this ain't, yeah. this don't turn into my day, you know, yeah, my yeah. time, you know, um, um, back to what I tell my son, you know, I talk to him about respect. I talk to him about making sure that he knows, um, you know, how to address people who are, you know, quote unquote, in authority, um, you know, you know, black men have been shot for the, the most ridiculous of yeah, things. Less than just a, you know, pull yeah. or, pull, getting pulled over like this. Yeah. But, right. Yeah. I mean, they have been shot for the most ridiculous of things. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk to my son, man, you know, all of my own personal thought process out of the window, I just try to tell him, you know, listen, bro, you got you. You're going to have to come home to me. I need mm-hmm. you to come home. You know, whatever you need to do to get home, just come. I need you to get home. Let me deal with the other stuff. You know, if somebody disrespects you, if somebody, you know, says a certain kind of thing to you that is not something that you, you know, I'm trained in a way to um, to handle that. Um, I, you know, I you know got maybe some connections that might be able to help address situations and this kind of thing. But I just need my son to come home. Right. So. That actually sort of transitions nicely to where I was going. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I first linked up with Apollo at the, the LCLD conference over the summer. And typically when I go to conferences, right, like I'm not really – I don't expect to stay in contact with that many people. That's just the nature of, of how it goes sometimes. Um, but I just found Apollo to be super genuine. Uh, and, and so that was the first thing that stood out to me. Uh, the second thing was obviously the the sort of – the parallels in our in our practice groups, like uh, the the real estate sort of yeah, uh, real the real estate game, transactional man. work, right? Uh, but it, but it really wasn't it wasn't the fact that you were a lawyer or your resume that stood out to me the most. It was uh, us talking about kids and and you being a father. Oh yeah, um, I had shared with you that you know I was having my second daughter at the time. Uh, she's now seven months old. Yes, sir. Um, but it was those conversations as we were headed to to the dinners and events. Uh, that probably will stick with me forever. And so I wanted you to just talk about, you know, what does it mean to be a, a father? What does it mean to be a black father? Um, and then just sort of the lessons you've learned over the years uh, being a father. Yeah, man, for sure, man. You know, one of the questions you sent me was, you know, who is Apollo Carey? Well, that's probably number one or one A. Uh, if you had to ask me how I, you know, define myself is being a dad, you know, I mean, I've been a dad since I was 18 years old. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm 46. So, you know, is you know, I've been a dad since I was 18 years old. And, you know, it's um, really what sort of saved my life, to be honest with you, in a lot of ways. Again, always been a studious kind of kid, but, you know, I was sort of a hothead and, um, you know, just not didn't see the best of examples uh, growing up as a kid. And so, you know, when, when I first, when I had my first kid, I was 18 years old. Um, and by the way, I, so I have three girls and one a boy. Um, so 27, 25 and 22 are the girls. And then my son is 14, but um, so, you know, I, you know, have been a been a father for so long. I don't remember. Well, I do remember a time when I wasn't, but then it was high school, right? Like like early high school. Um, and so, um, you know, I just it's something that has driven me and has been like my motivation to continue on doing uh, everything that I've done over my career. 
um, is something that, um, you know, I'm like probably the most thing, the thing that I'm most proud of. Um, my girls, you know, my my 27 year old, she lives in New York now and works for like a fashion designer. Um, my 25 year old, she's a lawyer in um, Kansas City. She was doing federal. She was clerks for a federal judge. She just graduated from law school in May. Uh, so she's clerking now. And then my 21 year old, she's applying to med school. She's at U Chicago. But, you know, all good kids, man, all doing stuff. You know, again, you know, if you'd heard people, you know, talk all the stuff they talked about me when I was young and I had all them young kids, you know, <laughs> they would never think that, uh, you know, my kids would be doing the stuff that they're doing or nor would I be doing the stuff that I'm doing. But, um, you know, I it's just something that really sort of saved me because I could have went left at any point in time. But having that life <laughs> that you are completely responsible for and nobody else is going to like help do anything for if you don't right and um you know having that responsibility thrust upon you um at an early age even when i and my brain wasn't ready for the responsibility but um obviously there was something in me that allowed me to rise to the occasion so so as i mentioned we were sitting on a bus and we were talking about you know uh you being a father and and, and things like that and yeah I, I, shared, I got two little girls now Tone recently just had a, a little girl. Congrats, uh, bro. Yeah, thank you, man. Yes, sir. Thank you, thank you. So, so yeah, where I was going was, one, it, it just, it shined through, like, just, like, how proud you are of your kids in our conversation. Um, and then I just immediately, once you started talking about the fact that, you know, I think one of them played Division One soccer. Oh, yeah. All, all of them kind of have been able to pursue their passions and interests. Yeah. And it sounds like you got the blueprint, right? So I'm wondering, are there any lessons that are non like genetic related that you can pass down to me and Tone and really to our listeners that are uh, either have young kids or uh, planning to have kids one day? Yeah, man, for sure. I don't know about the blueprint, bro. It's day by day <laughs> for sure. Believe me, you know, I, you know, is, is, um, there's certainly uh, there were challenges along the way and nothing, um, nothing really in life that, you know, that comes to you is, is, uh, is easy. Um, but you know, she, so yeah, you're right. You know, you mentioned the, the, um, you know, my daughter played soccer at Baylor university. Um, she, she got there, I think 2014 or so, like, right. As you know, Baylor's football team was, you know, uh, on top and Art Bryles was the, the man and they were number one in the nation and all this other stuff. And she had been heavily recruited by, a lot of different places and she settled on Baylor University, which, um, you know, was cool with me. Um, so it's a great, you know, a great university, but, um, you know, she, the, I guess a lesson that you're asking about what a lesson might be. So she was always like, she, so if you ever been around athletes or you play sports, you know, there's certain athletes that are just special mm -hmm. that you see them and you'd be like, you know what, that dude going to the league, it, it ain't even a question. Like you, you know, I mean, you like, all right, that dude right there. I mean, or, or that, that, um, that woman right there, she, that's just, there's nothing like her on the field, you know? And fortunately, very, very fortunately, I had the opportunity for my second daughter, uh, to be that one. I mean, she was just bigger, faster and stronger than everybody else. And immediately it was, it was just recognizable. So, you know, although my wife and I were both, you know, athletic, 
um, and athletes uh, in our own rights in, in high school, we were both very academically driven and we're always thinking, you know, academics first. Well, um, this kid was so gifted that it was like, man, we got to invest in that. So the idea I think we got was we sort of understood what the talent was, um, understood what she was just naturally predisposed to be good at and what she sort of loved to do. And we invested in that. You know, we basically adjusted our whole lives to make sure this kid could play soccer and the lives of her siblings to a certain extent, not, you know, not compromising them. But, um, you know, so we did everything we could to make sure we put this kid in a in a, a position to develop that talent and do what it is she was naturally disposed to do. Now, and I'm using the athletics as an example, but it could be academics. You know, you could have a kid that's like a math whiz. So you need to make sure you put her, put him or her in a situation where they have the opportunity to, to develop those skills. You could have a kid that's like a musical genius. And I did have a daughter who um, played the, um, uh, the violin in, a, in, a, in, a, in an orchestra. Um, it's my, my third daughter. So that, that was her, was her thing. Um, but just sort of, you know, spending, when you spend time with them, you sort of get to know the personality, you sort of get to know the skill sets. Right. And so as you do that, um, and you sort of see, you know, you and your, your spouse, you sort of see what the, um, you know, the various different traits and characteristics are of the, the kid, you know, I think it's incumbent upon you as a, as a parent to put them in situations to succeed and to develop those things. Um, and then the, the, sort of another aside, I'll be real quick with this. You know, it's important to me as a black man, to me that we have a strong, uh, you know, that, that black women are, are, are as strong as they can be. You know what I mean? Cause just growing up in the, in the area in the neighborhoods that I grew up in and, and you know, these kinds of things, you know, the, the women are the first, they're, they're the front lines, man. They're the front lines. They give birth to the babies. They nurture the babies. They teach the babies, you know, and not that men don't participate in that. Of course we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you you know, you have to understand that a healthy population of women is sort of the foundation of how we uh, sort of move forward. And so um, another part of that, another part of my goal of parenting was, especially since I had, you know, three girls was just to sort of make sure that we had, you know, young ladies who had options, who had ambition, who had a, a certain uh, self-awareness, uh, who, uh, you know, had, had had confidence and who, you know, were was able to see themselves in a certain kind of way. So that was important to me too. I guess uh, one of the last questions I have, and I, I truly am thankful for you, you know, taking your time to, to chop it up with it, especially, you know, on Sunday, probably football going crazy package just lost which is ass. <laughs> um so you were able to like kind of finesse yourself and put yourself in position where your equity partner at a at a, at a law firm one of, one of your clients is you know the city of ferguson you work with uh you know the police officers at the police stations um one thing that i always uh not hate, but I I don't enjoy is when, you know, I, I talk to black lawyers and they're like, oh, like I wouldn't go to law school kind of thing. Yeah. And I I'm I'm the opposite. Right. Because I feel that we need more black people, men and women in these rooms. Right. And yeah. if you could just talk about why it's important that you're in those rooms and why it's important to have more people like us 
um, in those rooms that you're able to, you know, sit at the table and have a conversation about what's important from your perspective? Why, why is that important to you? Yeah, Tony, you couldn't, I mean, I couldn't even said that better, man. I think you and I are completely aligned on that issue. Um, you know, obviously I've even gone so far as to produce a young lawyer myself, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and raise one and, and usher her through law school and, and through the bar, you know, bar um, examination and all that other stuff. So I am all for there being more people of color uh, in the pipelines um, as it relates to, to our profession. You know, uh, the reason being is because, you know, I think people, we have a tendency and I think, you know, over time, a lot of us have a tendency to sort of make light of the role of lawyers in the in society. And, um, you know, a lot of lawyer jokes and all these types of things that people, you know, sort of put out about our profession um, that you sort of make light or sort of devalue the role of lawyers uh, in society. But uh, in my mind, um, the role of the lawyer is sort of actually gained more prominence um, because uh, lawyers are the people who are, um, you know, advising the decision makers. Um, and if you are advising decision makers uh, about issues that impact um, not just the financial aspect of any particular transaction or not just um you know the corporate aspect or the, the the employee employer aspect but may have a social impact on um you know the the folks that are affected by that transaction um or um you know it, lawyers simply have um we we wield power man we wield power people listen to us if you're a good one they listen to you uh and the more people who are in the pipeline who are conscious about certain things, the more people who are in the pipeline who um, have a perspective that you know the other the decision makers who are listening to us may or may not have, um, you know the, just the better opportunity and the better chance we have to to effectuate um, you know more change throughout society in terms of what we're looking to to create whether that be from a diversity perspective, whether that be from a, a uh, the perspective of, you know, folks just wanting to move forward uh, certain agendas, whether it is, you know, you're trying to, um, you know, one of them is obviously from my perspective, like this issue of policing and constitutional policing. Well, who better to have as a lawyer as than a black male from the yeah. same city who, who understands what it's like to be stopped by the police. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I just feel like, you know, that, that perspective uh, is super, super important. And having more folks go to law school, understand how important it is and, and how impactful lawyers are on society in general. Um, and, and to sort of come through with you know, those different perspectives and those different viewpoints, um, it can do nothing but help sort of push the bar forward as we were talking about earlier, you know. And the more so, and I'm gonna use the analogy um, that I used earlier. The more soldiers you have in the pipeline, the more the better chance you have to to win the war. I've got a series of rapid fire questions. Yeah, uh, that I'm going to ask you just for our listeners uh, to get to know you a little better. Name one book that has had you know a profound impact on your life. Invisible Man. Favorite place to travel. Uh, favorite place to travel any place with a mountain 
I'm a hiker by nature. Like y'all don't know that about me, but I any uh, place with a mountain, that's where I'm at. I'm not a beach person. People like to go to the beach. I, I can go to the beach maybe for about two days, but that's about it. <laughs> I need the mountain. One word to describe your legacy. Determined. Hopefully now telling knows why I wanted to, to talk to you. I mean, no, I, I knew I knew as soon as I started like researching them, I was like, God damn. <laughs> no, but, that was but, my but, whole thing. Cause I think I think it's so I mean, black black men in, in law is one thing, but two meeting real people, right? Like Larry is very yeah, you know, on like yo, he doesn't rock with a lot of people, he doesn't care right. necessarily, but like you know, because he's met certain certain black attorneys where he's just like, Yeah, right. Man. I'm good on that one. So I think <laughs> I trusted it from the jump. And then I, I had the chance to research you and Larry sent me some stuff. And I was, I knew like this would be a good one, you know? Yeah, for sure. But it's that, it's that wisdom and that lived experience. I mean, you, you, you look much younger than you are. Right. But it's right. that, it's that, that lived experience and that specific advice you touched on, you know, providing specific advice. And I think that's where I'm at in my career, where it's like, I can't go talk to, you know, my mom about, this specific salary negotiation right. as a black man in, in, in a legal setting, but I can go to Apollo. I can, I can talk For to sure. you about, Anytime. hey, what was that like? You know, and, and so I just want to say thank you. One, whether you realize it or not, um, you helped blaze a trail for us. Uh, so I want to say thank you for staying the course uh, and for blazing the trail for people like me and Tone. Bro, yeah, I appreciate 100%. you saying that. What'd your you existence, home? your existence is like it means a lot to us because we know like we can get there. You know, you're tangible. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, man. You know what, man? I appreciate y'all saying that. You know, I mean, you know, sort of back to the, you know, when me and Larry met, I just, I, it was almost immediately I knew I was gonna rock with you. But then when we had that conversation on the bus about the kids, I was like, oh, nah, this brother right here, he know, he, you know, like he a real dude. It's not. You know, everybody be on that lawyer shit when you be around each other and all that. You know, and it's cool. I mean, yeah, hey, yeah. that's what we do. We on we be on lawyer shit, and that's 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 what it is. But you know, you need to be a real person too. Uh, and um, you know, it's just one of those things, man. Where when I when we had a chance to connect, I already knew I was like, all right, that brother right there, he cool people. So when you was like, yeah, I got this podcast, my boy Tone, I knew he was gonna be cool before I even met him. Yeah, it didn't even make because I just I knew who you was mm -hmm. as a you know at least what I had been exposed to to, to who you was and I, I was already sold right there so when you're like man I got a chance to you know you I'm doing this podcast you know we you know talk to the youth we talk about these real issues I'm like oh bro he's already done <laughs>